in these first four chapters of Ephesians, we have talked repeatedly about how we are a collective community of believers. The technical word the Apostle Paul uses is a redeemed group of people. We have individually, and Paul addresses this in the first four chapters of Ephesians. Ephesians is a small letter that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. It's preserved and contained in our New Testament, and it's called the book of Ephesians. In these chapters that we've looked at this summer, this spring, um, we have seen how the Apostle Paul clarifies us that we have been forgiven. We have heard of the love of Christ. We have heard what Jesus has done, and we have made the decision, a decision made by faith to trust him, to believe in him, and to ask him to, in a sense, reside, live with us, live through us. And in that relationship, we have been redeemed. God has paid the purchase. He's paid the ransom. He's paid for our sins through the death of Christ so that we might have new life, so that we might be able to be in this relationship with him. But what happens is not just individual. What happens is we are together in this. The, the church is a collective of redeemed individuals. The church is a collective of people who have had the opportunity to believe in and trust in Jesus and having made that decision, now gather for the purpose, like, just like we're doing this morning, to study, to, to, to worship, to serve, to help reach others who don't know Christ, to have that opportunity to speak Jesus' love into their lives. And so the church is a redeemed community. It is a, it is a group. It is defined and it contains people who believe in Jesus. And in that regard, the Apostle Paul reminds us and tells us, and that's the title of this series and what we've looked at over these past uh, six, seven weeks, is that we're in this together. We know Jesus, we trust him, he's forgiven us, and now we gather together and we have opportunities to serve, we have opportunities to, to reach out to people, we have opportunities to help one another, we have opportunities to worship together, to study together, to grow together in our relationship with him. And ironically, we're all the way in chapter four, so we're nearly two-thirds of the way through the book of Ephesians, and this is the first time Paul actually mentions unity. You would almost think if we're in this together, that would have been the first thing he would have addressed, the need for the church to be unified. But it's only just now coming up because, and I believe the reason for that is clear as you look at the progression of Ephesians. Paul wanted to make sure we absolutely, individually understood who we are in Jesus. Our identity in Jesus defines us and guides us. So in the same way that that's true individually, our collective, our community of believers also is defined and identified by who we are as a church in Jesus. And it's not a simple matter of pragmatic or strategic unity. That's not a matter of procedure or policy. It is a matter of relationship. Unity happens out of our relationship with Christ and out of our mutual relationship with Christ together as a group. But it's nice that in chapter four, beginning in the very first verse, the apostle Paul kind of pauses all the things he's been saying about that and just simply reminds us what Christian unity looks like. And it's helpful. Because I, I would dare say that probably the vast majority of us, when we talk about unity, we have particularly in mind secular mindsets. 
And so we tend to default to policy or procedure, or we tend to default to items of leadership or structure. Is at its best an issue of heart. And it's important to realize it is, it is unity of heart. It is not a unification or uh, a uniformity, none of the other un words that are out there. It's, it's not that we look alike. It's not that we act alike. It's not that we do the same things. It's an actually of extremely diverse community, but all the diversity, all the diversity in this community believes in Jesus and has forgiveness from Jesus and is looking forward to Jesus' return or going to be with him in eternity. Our new life in Christ defines who we are as a group. And that becomes real obvious from the very first part of, of, chapter, of chapter four, verse one, when Paul just simply references his situation, which we've looked at before. He's, he's under house arrest in Rome because he's sharing the gospel with Gentiles, with heathens, with non-Jews. He's under arrest. And he just simply reminds them and then encourages them. I, I, I the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. That calling in this particular case is what we've discussed as we've gone through these first four chapters. It is that Jesus invited us into a relationship and we at some point in time made a decision about that relationship and we have accepted the invitation and we have in a reverse action of acceptance invited him to live in and through us. We are a redeemed community. We are a believing community community. And he begins to talk about the character of that Christian unity. I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, worthy of who we are in Christ. With all, and he gives us these characteristics, humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. All of these issues are heart issues. We, we can't legislate humility. There, there's no way any organization can say, okay, we want to be unified. We want to live in unity. And the first thing we have to do is be humble. And so there's no way to legislate it. There's no way to guard that. There's no way to, there's no way to actually somehow create that in policy or procedure that says you have to be a person of humility. But yet you cannot be in unity without humility. Jesus' teachings were clear about this, that we have a responsibility to exalt, to lift up, to, to seek the betterment of other people above our own. We have to put our own needs aside. We have to put our own pride aside and live in humility. That's the character of unity. And gentleness, how valuable gentleness is. Now, depending upon the way God designed us and our personalities and our behavioral patterns, that might be more difficult. But see, the redeemed person realizes my identity is in Jesus. My identity is not in my accomplishments. My identity is not in my titles or procedural accomplishments. My, my identity is in Jesus. And my Savior, who happens to be simultaneously my Savior, my Lord, and the majestic, almighty, all-knowing God, came in gentleness. 
Take a look at the book of Philippians and the beautiful description of how Christ gave up everything in his power and in, in, in his position as God and Jesus came here. Literally, Paul writes to the Philippians, he humbled himself to become like mankind, to become like us. And while he's on earth, he is human simultaneously with God, but he experiences all the human experiences. He knows all of the pain. There's not a single pain in this room this morning that Jesus hasn't felt. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be insulted. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows, he knows what it is to feel isolated. He knows what it is to be alone. Just about every pain we've ever experienced, Jesus experienced. And yet, with all of his majesty, his humility enabled him to be gentle. So the children wanted to be with him. So that those who were in complete despair because of the, the mistakes and the mishaps of their life and the, the sin that had separated them from any hope in God, they could find a receiving, forgiving heart. And patience. You know, our unity... The, the love that exists in a collective group of believers it characterizes the patience of God. The apostles would later write to churches who were wondering why Jesus hasn't come back yet. And we're told that the reason Jesus has not returned yet is because God himself is a patient God. And he desires no one. He desires no one to be lost or forgotten. God has been patient and he continues to be patient because he knows our neighbors that don't know him. Because he knows our family members who don't know him. He knows our co-workers who don't know him. And God is patient in his very nature, hoping, desiring, wanting them to receive that invitation and make that life-changing decision to trust in him. It's not God's desire that we perish. And absolutely, he has no intent and no desire for us to perish without him and be condemned and separated forever. He does everything possible out of his patience to make sure everybody hears, everybody knows. The Apostle Paul told the church at Rome, even the very nature of creation, even the things that have been created that you look at and you see and you experience, testify to the good news, to the hope that is in Jesus, the hope of having a relationship with God. So our, our Christian unity is characterized by humility, gentleness, bearing with one another. And that may sometimes be the most difficult thing. Let's just be honest for a minute. Not so honest that it becomes awkward. So don't turn and say something to somebody. But sometimes just getting along with ourselves is a little bit tough. I mean, think about it for a minute. The people we love the most are oftentimes the ones we fight with the most. Nobody elbowed their husband right at this moment. But it's true. The more we know them, I'll, I'll be honest, y'all don't harass them, but I love my kids and I'm proud of my kids and I talk about them a lot and, and they mean so much to me, but oh my gosh, there's not a human being on earth that can get on my nerves as bad as they do. But it doesn't change my love. Thankfully, before my children were born, I met Jesus. 
And so thankfully, he led me to a godly woman, and thankfully, we've had a Christian marriage, and it is absolutely not perfect. It never is. But we've learned how to forbear with one another, how to deal with one another, and that applies to our children, and it actually goes all even further to apply to our friends and, and our neighbors and people around us. Christian unity learns to live with one another in all of our difficulties and all of our different things which is unique about the diversity of the church. We don't have to all be the same way. We don't have to like the same things because the redemption, that redeemed quality of who we are in Jesus, that forgiveness that God has given us enables us to forgive others. And ironically, it enables us to forgive them not only when they've done something that hurts us or offends us, but just forgive them in general because sometimes they get on our nerves. We know that. We understand it. Christian unity rises above these things. And all of this is captured in verse 2 in Paul's describing this being a place of love. That we just simply care about one another. All morning long, and this is typical of any Sunday, I've had multiple conversations with multiple people and we've talked about where God's answered prayer. We've talked about where there's a need for prayer. We've talked about things that are taking place. We've talked about job issues and, and employment issues. We've talked about health issues. We, we've discussed it because we know in this place we're loved. I, I can share that prayer request and I know for a fact somebody is praying. It's not just wasted energy on my part. They will pray. This is a place filled with God's love. And it begins to characterize in a very visible way who Jesus is. Which this is pivotal to understanding unity. The source of unity is not actually us. We are intentionally and thankfully and gracefully an extremely friendly church and we love that about ourselves we cross boundaries and we we realize that at times it just can be a little awkward sometimes uh, but we don't ever want to lose the enthusiasm of how God has changed us and how much we want others to experience that change so we're intentionally that way but it's not because of our structure. It's not because of our procedures. It's not because of the pastor. It's not because of the staff. It's not because of other leaders. It's because Jesus is doing this work in our midst. There is only one singular source for unity. And Paul describes that in verse four. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. The source of Christian unity comes back to the very thing that describes who we are as a believer in Christ. It comes back to God's work in our midst. I would go as far to say that you could create an artificial sense of unification or uniformity, but not have unity if it's not from Jesus. Jesus enables us. I am not naturally a humble person. I was born arrogant, speaking my mind. 
You can call my mother and ask her. I'm not naturally a gentle person. I have prayed all my life that I would become increasingly gentle. I am not naturally a patient person. I am not naturally inclined to, with, to just simply bear up and forbear people that get on my nerves. I, I don't have any of those inclinations. I didn't even understand love before I became a Christian. I had no concept of it. I, I had these sort of secular, romantic, sentimental ideas, the kind of stuff you see in movies and musicals because that's kind of what I was fed as a kid. And I thought that's what it was. I thought if you're in love, you sing songs. The only problem was I couldn't sing. So I played piano. The only problem was if you play piano in the girls' dorm, more than one shows up and it's not good at that point. I just, you know, all these sentimental secular ideas failed over and over again because I was missing the one source of true love and the only source for unity. We can't manufacture unity in our congregation. It comes from God. He is the source. And the body reacts to that because God has graciously enabled us to do that. Verses 7 through 13 gets a little complicated. I'm just going to tell you that right up front. And because I really, really like verses 1 through 3, I've utilized most of my time in that area. But let me just tell you that 7 through 13 begin to describe the functionality. The imagery here is of the kings and dictators and 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 the leaders of foreign nations that would conquer another nation. And when that nation was conquered, they would return to their subjects and the spoils that had been gathered on that conquest are brought back to their nation, brought back to their capital, brought back to their people, and then were distributed out amongst the people. And it kept the loyalty of the subjects. It kept the interest of the subjects because you would go to war and the goal was to win. And in winning, you received all of these spoils and then came back and you blessed the population with the results, the produce of those spoils, whether it's food or silver or gold or clothing and, and fabric. You, you gained out of that victory. Paul's imagery sees that picture in what Jesus did. That Jesus came to earth in humility and doing so brought all of the blessing of heaven to us. And in conquering death and in conquering Satan and in conquering the evil brought the opportunity for victory to us and then distributes it to us out of his grace and so he talks about in verse 7 how grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ. He distri distributed it. Who ascended on high and took captives. He gave the gift. He gave gifts to the people. What does it mean? He ascended except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. The one who descended is also the one who ascended above all the heavens to fill all things. And in verse 11, he gave he himself gave some and lists off offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip the saints for ministry, build up the body until we all reach unity in the faith, the knowledge of God's son growing into maturity, a stature measured by Christ's fullness. In Jesus' victory, he distributed his gifts to us, his grace to us, and we exhibit that in our lives. 
And so actually in the midst of Christian unity, the functionality of Christian unity demands that there's diversity. We don't all preach. We don't all teach. We don't all serve. We don't all sing. We don't, you begin to list through. I mean, there's over 30 something, 31 I believe, listed specifically in scripture. You look at all the different lists of spiritual gifts contained in Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians. You look at all those different lists, you have over 31 things. No one person has all 30 something, but every person has something because Jesus distributed it out to all of us. When those gifts and their diversity begin to work, then the whole mechanism begins to come together. Paul's beautiful example to the Corinthian church was simply, it's like a body. And there's all kinds of parts and there's all kinds of movement and there's all kinds of functions. But the body, when it functions together in unity, all those individual functions and all those individual things work together and bring glory to Christ. We don't want to all look alike. We don't all want to walk alike. We don't all want to talk alike. We, don't, we want to say, have all the same gifts. The diversity is the functionality of the unity that comes from knowing Jesus and letting him work his love through us because it's his unity. And I love the conclusion. This is why church is so important. And I believe it's why church is so important in this generation. Verse 14, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunningness, with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love the proper working of each individual part. The church is a stable place when we live in our identity in Jesus and share that in our cooperation and activity and service and faith together. We need every part. There's not a single individual in this room. There's not a single individual on live stream at this moment. There's not anyone we don't need. We need everyone to live out their identity in Jesus together in this collective of believers. In this time and in this moment, God has put us together. Yes, there's all kinds of exciting things going on, all kinds of things taking place. But it's not just the programs and the procedures and the, and the progress. It's living together. We need one another. And out of that diverse functionality, we have the opportunity to find stability in our relationship with one another. This, this description is not a pleasant description being a little child, never maturing, tossed back and forth on the waves, blown around by every wind, every teaching, every thought, everything that comes up. We need one another because we need stability. And God's family is the best place to find stability because it's Christian unity. It's never about structure. 
It's never about policy. It's always about Jesus. And it's always about Jesus working in us together. We are in this together.